The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. We want to spend some time in God's Word this morning in Hebrews chapter 2. It is Christmas Eve, and we know that uh, today and tomorrow you're going to be busy with family, friends, get-togethers, parties. And in the midst of all of that activity, in the midst of the flurry of those events and the hustle and the bustle that goes with this time of year, as Jim said in his prayer, we, we need to go back to the basics. We need to just remember what the focus of this time of year is about. I was reminded again of the importance of that in an article that I read this week. It was an article written to pastors, and the title said this, Pastor don't get cute this Christmas. Let me read a portion of the article to you. Quote, I know the feeling. Christmas comes around every year, the same songs, the same texts, the same story. Most of the time I love the familiar rhythm of Advent and the comforting routine of tradition. But as a pastor, I also know that sense of desperation. How many more Christmas sermons can I possibly come up with? I sympathize with the temptation to novelty, but don't do it, Pastor. Don't get cute at Christmas. Your people need regular meat and potatoes, not the newest eggnog recipe. Stay away from props and video clips. Put to death the Star Wars tie-in you've been really excited about. It's tempting. Don't worry about preaching the same truths and the same themes They don't remember last year's sermon anyway. Is that true? Come on, not here. Go ahead and tell them the old, old story one more time. There will be be unbelievers at your Christmas Eve service and struggling saints and weary souls and wayward sinners and stragglers who have ventured into a church for the first time in a long time. They need to hear about Jesus, about the Word made flesh and the only begotten Son sent from the Father, about the one who fulfilled ancient prophecy, about the one who came to save his people from their sins. Dear pastor, our people don't need us to find something new. They don't need empty spiritual bromides. They don't need us to brandish our cultural bona fides at Christmas. Our people need the gospel. They need the Trinity. They need to hear about the miracle and the majesty and the mystery of the incarnation. Hunker down in Matthew 1 or Luke 2 or Isaiah 9 or Micah 5 or John 1 or any text that will lead you to lift high the name of Jesus. Don't be cute or clever. Just preach Christ. Your people will be glad you did, and looking back years later, so will you. It's good advice. It's tempting this time of year to get cute, to put a new spin on Christmas, to make it really interesting, to find something to spice up the same old story. It's tempting to do that because after years and years and years of preaching the old story, sometimes you wonder how many more times can you say it differently. And yet we must resist that temptation because it is the simple, basic, foundational, fundamental facts of Christmas that is both profound and marvelous. 
And so that's why I appreciate about the sentiment in the article. It says, don't worry about preaching the same truths and the same themes. Just go ahead and tell them the old, old story one more time. And so I want to do that this morning. I want to tell you the old, old story just one more time. I think it's important for us to do that because certainly this time of year, it's easy for us to throw around generalities. We talk about hope, we talk about joy, we talk about peace, we talk about love, we talk about the spirit of Christmas, we talk about the reason for the season. These are all generalities that we throw around as if that really captures for us the essence of the season. And I'm afraid that in many cases it doesn't. Oh, it's easy to talk about joy, it's easy to talk about hope. Joy for what? Hope in what? It's easy for us to talk about the reason of the season, and yet I'm afraid that for many people it's easy to think about that just means you need to have a giving spirit or you need to be extra patient with your kids or you need to be more kind than you're normally kind or you need to pay it forward to someone. For many people, I think it's possible to say the reason for the season and not mean Christ. It's easy to talk about the spirit of Christmas time of year to get together with friends and family and laugh and have parties and give gifts and presents and miss Christ. Those are all wonderful sentiments, but it's not really the true spirit of Christmas. What is the true spirit of Christmas? We all know. It is without a doubt to thank God for the gift of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is about. It is to praise God for the gift of his Savior. Christmas is an opportunity for us to exalt Jesus Christ, to worship him for the incarnation, to do what Anna did as we saw last week, to bless the Lord and give thanks for the gift of his son, to do what Simeon did in the temple when he beheld that newborn child and to say, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people. That's the spirit of Christmas. To say with Mary in Luke chapter 1, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. To say with Zacharias in Luke chapter 1, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. That's the spirit of Christmas. To say with the angels, glory to God in the highest. That's the old old story that we must keep going back to. And to help us do that this morning, there's a text that I have never preached on, but I would like to take you there. It is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. You're hopefully there by now, but Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. These five verses help us understand the true spirit of Christmas. These five verses help us understand why God became a man. These five verses show us in beautiful living color the spirit of Christmas. I want to take you through them this morning. Follow along as I read, starting in verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. You remember that the writer of Hebrews, his aim is to exalt Christ to show the superiority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, the writer shows us how Christ is superior to the angels. In chapter 3, he tells us how Christ is superior to Moses. In chapters 4 through 7, how Christ is superior to the priesthood. And in the rest of the book, how Christ is superior to the entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We find ourselves in chapters 1 and 2 where he is speaking of Christ being superior to the angels. Look with me in verse 9, though, because he tells us in verse 9 that for a little while, Christ was made a little lower than the angels. That's a reference to the incarnation. Before before the incarnation of Christ, before he entered the world, Christ was higher than the angels. And yet for a time, For 33 years, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was made a little lower than the angels. In verses 14 to 18, he gives us four reasons why. Four reasons why God had to become a man. Four reasons for the importance of the incarnation. Four reasons the the writer wants us to understand why Christ, for a time, was made a little lower than the angels. And I want to give those to you this morning as we meet together and as we open the Word. Let's just briefly walk through these four reasons for why God became a man. Four reasons for the incarnation. First, number one, is that it was done to identify with us. It was done to identify with us. Look at verse 14. The writer says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. What a monumental statement. Since the children share in flesh and blood. Who's that? That's us. The children, those whom Christ would come to redeem, those whom Christ would come to make to be a part of his family, those whom Christ would adopt into his familial relationships, those people, he says, were flesh and blood. It's a reference to humanity. We, we live in the realm of the humanity. We live in flesh and blood. We are human. We are earthly. We are bound by human flesh. And in order to rescue us, Christ also had to become human. You know this. You understand this, that before the incarnation, Christ had no humanity associated with him. He is a member of the Trinity, of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship, in perfect relationship with one another. None of them, particularly Christ, had humanity. There was no humanity associated with them. He did not possess any traits of humanity prior to the incarnation. He possessed only a divine nature. He was only God, a spirit. He had no humanity whatsoever. As one writer says, flesh and blood were foreign to his existence as the eternal Son of God. No humanity. Even in the Old Testament appearances of Christ, and there were many, and Matt referenced them in the song that he sang, there were many Old Testament appearances of Christ, and even in those appearances, he did not possess humanity. 
Though he appeared in human form in many different ways, he did not possess a humanity until the incarnation. Here's the problem. Divinity cannot rescue humanity in and of itself. In order for humanity to be rescued, in order for us to be delivered, there must be one who identifies with us. And so Christ took on flesh and blood. That's what the writer says. Since the children share in flesh and blood, verse 14, he himself likewise also partook of the same. This is marvelous. We share in flesh and blood. That's the word koinoneo, koinonia. We have fellowship with flesh and blood. We have a communion with, a partnership. We have our common lot with flesh and blood. We are human. We possess humanity. That's us. That's what defines us. That's our common nature. But not Christ. Before the incarnation, he had no humanity. So while it says we share in that, referring to something we have in common with one another, verse 14 says he partook of that, and that verb means that he took on something which he did not naturally possess. So we share in something which we naturally possess, humanity, but Christ takes on something which he did not naturally possess. He partook of humanity. He added flesh to his nature. He added humanity to his nature so that now he represents us. He is like us. He is related to us. He is our blood relative. He is our brother. He, he now shares in common with us physical humanity. Staggering. Because he didn't possess it in and of himself before the incarnation. This was something he voluntarily and willfully added to his nature. We know that his humanity was a real humanity. There was an ancient heresy called docetism which said that Christ only appeared human, that he simply was an apparition of humanity. He simply looked human, but he actually wasn't human. And that's a heresy because everything in Scripture tells us that Christ was and is human. See, how do you know? Let me give you some examples. Number one, he had a human birth. Christ had a human birth. He entered this world in the same way you and I entered this world. He came into this world as a baby, the same way every single one of us in this room entered this world. He had a human birth. Secondly, he had a human body, just like ours. He, he, was, he was a man. He had flesh and blood, flesh and bones. Luke chapter 40, 24, verse 39 says, The Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. He had flesh and bones with a real body. He even said to Thomas after the resurrection, Touch my hands and touch my side. Thirdly, he experienced human growth. Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Do you know that in that verse there are four expressions of human development and growth? It says he increased in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with men. To increase in wisdom is mental growth, mental development. To increase in stature is physical growth and physical development. 
to increase in favor with God is spiritual growth and spiritual development. And to increase in favor with men is social growth and social development. He had all of them, just like we do. We all grow up physically. We all grow up spiritually. We all grow up uh, 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 socially. We all grow up mentally. At least we're supposed to. Jesus had all the same development. Mental, physical, spiritual, social. Fourthly, he had human limitations and weaknesses. He had human limitations and weaknesses. He was tired. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He experienced all the limitations that you and I experience through the normal vicissitudes of humanity. We, we struggle at times with, with just being fatigued and tired and thirsty and hungry. He had all of that. Last, he had human emotions. He wept at Lazarus' death. He was troubled in the garden as he contemplated the cross before him. He was amazed at a centurion's faith. Those are human emotions. So everything about Christ points to the fact that he was genuinely human, just like all of us. The only difference was his humanity was a sinless humanity. He did not have any sin nature which characterized him. And so he was made just like us, except in that one area, no sin, no sin nature. A staggering reality. Think about that. God in human flesh. How, how, how do you put deity and all the glory of deity into a human body? Think about that. How do you take all that is glorious associated with God? How do you take all that God is, all of his attributes, all of his divine nature? How do you take all of the expression of his deity and confine it down into a frail human body? That's what he did. It's one of the greatest mysteries of all time. It perhaps is the greatest mystery of all time. How in the world do you take all that God is and you put it in this small frail humanity. It ought to blow your minds. Hold your finger in Hebrews 2. Go over to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I know you know this text well, but I want to take you there just briefly. And with coming to this text, I want you to think about this question. How in the world do you take deity and put it into humanity? What has to take place in order for that to happen? Well, Paul tells us, speaking of humility, as he's speaking of our attitude towards one another and the fact that we need to humbly serve one another. Verse 4, we need to look out for not our own interests, but the interests of others. We're to have this attitude of humility in ourselves and then to demonstrate the greatest illustration of humanity in the world, Paul looks at Christ who, verse 6, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped and emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That has to be one of the most glorious passages in the entire Bible. Christ Verse 6, although he existed in the form of God. Beloved, do you understand that? He's God. Christ is God, the second member of the Trinity. Possessing all the divine rights and privileges of being God. 
verse 6, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Beloved, let that sink in. He's God. He possesses all of the attributes of Godness. He has all the the divinity associated with the full attributes of the whole trinity. And yet he says, I don't grasp it. I'm willing to hold it with an open hand. Why? Verse 7 says he humbled himself. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. This is known as the kenosis. He emptied himself. And we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Of what did he empty himself? And there are some who have suggested that Christ emptied himself of his divine attributes, that he emptied himself of some of his divine properties. And that is wrong. That is false. That is not at all what this passage teaches. Because when he became a man, he did not become any less God. Attributes loosely and not allow them to shine forth as brilliantly as he could have or should have. This is a tremendous statement. So how, how did he empty himself? Look at verse 7. He emptied himself, listen, not by subtraction, but by addition. Christ did not empty himself by subtraction. He emptied himself by addition. Look at verse 7. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. He emptied himself by addition. He emptied himself by adding to his deity humanity. Wow. He didn't lose anything of his deity. He didn't divest himself of divine attributes. No, what he did is he added to his divine nature humanity. And that, my friends requires humility. Great humility. Because in doing so, he had to be willing to veil the full expression of his divine attributes. Because it's impossible for the glory and the beauty and the wonder of all that he is to be confined to a human body and still express itself in the fullness of his divine attributes. So in order to do that, he had to humble himself and restrict the full expression of his divine attributes. The great theologian Shedd said this, he said, The finite and limited human nature hindered a full manifestation of the omniscience of his deity. This was a part of the humiliation of the eternal logos. He condescended to unite himself with an inferior nature through which his own infinite perfections could shine only in part. And when deity does not work as simple deity, untrammeled, but works in the form of a servant, it is humbled. Do you understand this? Do you realize how far Christ had to stoop to become one of us? Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll go back to Hebrews 2 in just a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 
verse 9. I want to give you one more window into this incredible step down that Christ took. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. Paul gives us one more window into this marvelous incarnation. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Christ was rich. Christ was rich. Christ was richer than any person who's ever existed on the face of this planet. Think for a moment about the riches of Christ. He made everything. He sustains everything. He owns everything. He is the eternal Son of God, the very radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of His nature. He is the eternally glorious One, the One who in Isaiah 6 shows Him seated on the throne of God. We know that that is Christ because He tells us that in John chapter 12. And all these rich, divine relationships that he has to enjoy before the incarnation, perfect fellowship with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all perfectly united in this perfect Trinitarian relationship. Talk about rich. Creator, sustainer, God, King, Lord of Lords, eternally glorious in the fullness of the perfections of divine relationships within the Godhead. And verse 9 says, despite that, for your sake, he became poor. This is a true riches to rags story. He became poor. He sacrificed the full expression of his divine attributes to become man, to identify with us. One commentator said he surrendered all the insignia of divine majesty and assumed all the frailty and vicissitudes of the human condition. Tremendous. He concealed the divine majesty of the glory of the Lord behind the veil of the poverty of a slave. It's unreal. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, because this is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is talking about when he says that he became like us in flesh and blood. Beloved, think about in Christ, you have the perfect union of God and man. 100% God, 100% man, fused together in one person where there's no mixture of the divine and the human nature. There's no separate, there's no confusion here. They're separate, distinct natures. They're brought together into one person in the person of Christ. And he did this voluntarily. Not because he was forced to, not because he had to, but he, he voluntarily waived his rights in order that, as verse 14 says, he could partake of the same flesh and blood. Unreal. Think about that for a moment, because if he hadn't done that, we would be without a rescuer. Who else could identify with us? Angels can't. Animals can't. Sorry, your dog can't identify with you. Nor can your cat or your goldfish. It takes a person 
to identify with humanity. And so the first reason for the incarnation is that Christ came to identify with us. Number two, there is a second reason for why God had to become a man. It was to deliver us from the fear of death. It was to deliver us from the fear of death. Look at verse 14, the end. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Friends, this is, the, this is the reason why Christ became a man. He became a man to deliver us from the fear of death. And let's face it, if you talk to most people, at least most people who are not Christians, they're scared of death. The fear of death is real. The fear of death is universal. People, by and large, are afraid to die. People live in the fear of their own death. There is a phobia associated with it. Thanatophobia is the fear of one's own mortality. If you just talk to people in the world, if you can get beyond the surface and you can get to a conversation where you talk about death, which is something we don't normally do because we have sanitized death in our culture. It's not something we talk about. It's not something we celebrate. It's not even something any of us really witness because death takes place in sanitized places like hospitals and other places where people are kind of removed from the whole death situation. We have sanitized this whole concept of death, and so we don't normally talk about it. It's not something we are even uh, willing to engage in, and yet if you get beyond that and you talk to people, they will admit, most of them, they're afraid to die. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't have the, the, the peace that comes with being a believer. And maybe here this morning, you are afraid to die. The fear of death has gripped your heart. I've seen it. As a pastor, I have the privilege of being called into some of the most personal and intimate times in a person's life. Some of those times being on the brink of death. I've been called at all hours of the day to go sit with people as their loved one is about to pass away. Many of those, most of those have been believers and it has been the joy to sit with them and watch them pass from this life into the next. But there have been some I've sat in the hospital, and I have seen the terror of death on their faces and the faces of their loved ones. It's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Because there's the fear of the unknown. What happens next? And there's the fear of pain. Is it going to hurt? And there's this fear of loss of control. What happens after I die? What's going to happen to my family? And there's this concern about those who are left behind. Death is so final. It scares us. Did you know that death is one of Satan's primary tools in his toolbox? That's what the verse tells us. Look at verse 14. That through death... 
he might render powerless him who has the power of death, that is the devil. Do you understand that the devil's tool is death? Now, God is sovereign over that, and God allows Satan to wield that power according to his will. It's not an absolute power. Satan can't cause death, whatever he wants, in whatever circumstances he desires. Satan is under the control of God, and he's only allowed to wield the power of death when God allows it. You can see that in the book of Job, when God allows Satan to afflict death on Job's children and says to Satan, don't lay a hand on Job, don't kill him. God's ultimately in charge of that. But Satan has the power of death. He has the power of death. He operates in a realm of darkness where he enslaves people to sin and to death. Look at verse 15. It's very clear. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Listen, Satan uses the threat of death to enslave people to his will. To make people live in fear all of their lives. To keep them from doing what God wants them to do. And then when people die who don't know the Lord, they're catapulted into hell. And Satan has won another one to his cause. For eternity. This is his plan. This is how he works. From the beginning, Satan's plan was to use death to accomplish his purposes. You know what happened in the, in the garden. God told them not to eat of the fruit. Adam and Eve, Eve at least sees it and sees how good it is and how wonderful it must be. And Satan walks up to her and says what? Oh, you will not surely Because the moment they ate it, they experienced spiritual death, physical death, and eternal death. Satan is the author of death. He is a killer. John 8, 44 says he's a murderer from the beginning. He exercises the power of death in that he promotes sin and he promotes rebellion. And he knows that Hebrews 9, 27 is true, that it is appointed for men to die once and after this to face judgment. Death is Satan's weapon. He enslaves people with it. He brings about spiritual bondage because of it. Men cannot escape it in their own power. And Satan wants to hold on to men until they die because once they're dead, the opportunity for salvation is gone. So if that's the case, then how is God going to solve that problem? He's going to solve that problem by sending one who will use death to defeat death. Is that good? The only way to destroy Satan was to rob him of his weapon, namely death. God had to wrest from Satan the power of death. He had to meet Satan on his terms. He had to meet Satan on his ground and use death to return the purposes to God. And to restore the dominion back to himself. Not that he was ever out of control. Not that God was ever thwarted in his plans by any means. But Jesus destroyed death through death. Look at verse 14. That's what he says. He says that through death he, Christ, might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Do you realize what Christ did? Christ became a man so that he could render powerless, destroy, do away with, abolish, bring to naught, render inoperative the works of Satan and the power that Satan has in death. And Christ did that through his own death. Marvelous. Marvelous. 
was at the cross where the incarnate Son of God suffered a death which was not his to suffer. It was at the cross where God treated Christ as if he was our sin, even though he wasn't, so he could treat us as if we were his righteousness, even though we are not. So it's through death. And the reversal of death through the resurrection and the giving of life, which God used to destroy Satan's weapon of death. Satan's weapon is powerful, let's face it, but God's weapon is more powerful in the giving of his son who came and entered into death so that he could be raised back to life, so that he could then issue eternal life to all who will believe in him. That is how God wrested control from Satan's grip on death. 1 John 3, verse 8 says, The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. He did it. He did it. And he used his death to destroy Satan's power over death. And so the result is, what? No fear. No fear. You ever see those bumper stickers? I don't know what they really mean. But I see him on the car all the time. No fear. No fear of what? I don't know. Is that your way of saying I'm cool? I don't know what it means. But I can tell you this. Every Christian ought to wear one on their bumper sticker, on their bumpers. Because if you know Christ, there's no fear. There is absolutely no fear in death. Because Christ has removed the sting of death. That's the gospel. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Death can't even do it. That's why Paul could say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, we prefer to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's why he could say in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Why? Why would you say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain? Because death for the believer ushers us into the presence of God. Death is the gateway to heaven. Death is what will, God will use to bring us into his presence. And so death is not scary for us. The death of our loved ones is not scary for us. Even though it's sad and it's hard and we say goodbye to them and we miss them for a time, there is no fear in death, period. And I'll tell you, there is a marked difference between sitting with a family who knows that and a loved one who has experienced that than a family who has no hope of that. Death is scary, fearful. Well, Christ came to deliver us from the fear of death. Friends, that's why the incarnation had to happen. You understand that? Because God couldn't die. You're aware of that? Maybe you've heard of some people who've said that when Christ died on the cross, God died. No, he didn't. That is a heresy known as theopassionism, that God died on the cross. God didn't die on the cross because God can't die. God is immortal. It's one of his attributes. So there is no way for God himself to die on the cross. There's no way for God to experience death. So there's no way for God in his divinity to secure the redemption of humanity. God had to become a man so that the man Jesus could die. And that's what has secured deliverance from the fear of death for all who will believe. 
So, looming over the manger is the shadow of the cross. There's a third reason that Christ had to become a man, that God had to become a man, is to act as our sympathetic priest. To act as our sympathetic priest. Another reason he had to become man, the other reason for the incarnation, is because he could act then as our sympathetic priest. Look at verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. This is so good. Do you know that Christ didn't come to help angels? You know why? Because angels don't need help. I mean, demons need some help, but they can't be saved. They will never be saved. They are fallen angels. They are corrupt. They are wicked. They have fallen into sin and rebellion with Satan. They will never be redeemed. They will never be forgiven. But holy angels, they don't need help. They're perfect. They're sinless. They're in perfection. And they will be forever and ever and ever. They will never fall into sin. So angels need no help. But you and I are a different story. (laughs) I got some bad news for you. You need some serious help. Every one of us needs help. Because none of us could fix our problem. None of us could fix our situation. None of us could do what what needed to be done to bring us to God. We needed a priest. You know what a priest is? A priest is one who represents the people to God, not a prophet. A prophet represents God to the people. A priest does the opposite. A priest represents the people to God. We needed someone to act in our stead, to identify with us, who would represent us before God, to be a priest for us. And that's what Christ came to do. That's what the text tells us. He came to be a priest, not to help angels, but to help us. Who the seed of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham. That's not just referring to Jews here. He's referring to all who will believe in Christ and become children of Abraham by faith. In other words, he helps all who will come to him in faith and believe. They become children of God through Abraham. And because of that, he came to identify with them to rescue us from sinful humanity. How? Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like. I love that. It doesn't say it was a good suggestion or it was a good idea or, you know, if it works out, maybe we can make it happen. No, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. We needed a priest. We needed someone who will interact between us and God. We needed someone who will identify us before God. We needed someone who would be made like us in every way, yet without sin, so he could represent us before God to be our mediator, to be our intercessor. And look how he did this. Look at the end of verse 17. He did this to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I love that. He did that to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word propitiation is a big word that means to satisfy, to placate, to pacify, to appease. And the idea here is that God is angry with sin. God is angry with sin. And you need to hear this loud and clear because in our day, there are people who don't want to talk about this attribute of God. They want to make God just a loving, fluffy, kind old grandpa kind of God who's just there to give you whatever you want. He's just loving, but listen, you need to hear this loud and clear. God hates sin. God abhors the wicked. 
God hates people who engage in rebellious sin against him. He hates it. He's holy, he's righteous, he's just. And because of that, he cannot turn a blind eye. He cannot ignore it. He cannot overlook it. He cannot wink at it. He cannot pretend it didn't happen. His wrath must be satisfied. Either the sinner pays for it in receiving God's wrath or someone else steps in our place and takes our substitution or takes our place as our substitute and receives the wrath. But God must pour out wrath. To not do so is to not be holy. To not do so is to not be righteous. To not do so is to not be God, because God is holy and perfect. He must punish sin. And the good news of the incarnation is that Christ entered our world as a human. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So as Christ goes to the cross and as he is nailed there and from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. as he hangs suspended between heaven and earth and darkness enters the land from 12 noon until 3 p.m. and God turns out the lights around that area. What was taking place? Some have suggested that the darkness that shrouded Jerusalem at that time was an indicator of God's absence, and I don't think that's the case. I believe the darkness that surrounded Jerusalem in the hours surrounding the death of Christ was an indicator of the very presence of God in wrath. As God poured out his righteous indignation on Jesus Christ, As God looks at his son and he sees your sin and my sin, as Christ bears that, as he bears the weight of that, as as God treats his son as if he's a sinner and the son feels the full weight of that and he feels the full brunt of that, he doesn't deflect it or cancel it. He absorbs it in full. And that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, the father turns his back on the son because he's too holy to see and engage in a relationship with that which is sinful. Christ in that moment experienced hell. Hell is not just a place. Hell is a, a situation where a sinner experiences the full fury of the wrath of God Christ was in hell in that moment on the cross. Propitiating God's wrath against our sin. That's why he had to become a man. That's why he had to be incarnate. Because he had to absorb the full fury of the wrath of God against our sin. Last, number four. Why did Christ have to become a man? Number one, to identify with us. Number two, to deliver us from the fear of death. Number three, to act as our sympathetic priest. Number four, to help us in our temptation. To help us in our temptation. This is so good. Look at verse 18. For since 
he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. What a comfort. What temptation are you facing this morning? Where you're struggling in Christian life, where are you tempted to sin? What is it? Anxiety? Anger? Losing your patience? Doubting God's goodness? Not trusting Him? You're tempted to overeat, to steal, to cheat, to lie, to cover yourself? You're tempted to lust? What are you tempted to do? Walk out on your family? What are the temptations facing you this morning? What are the things that in your life are God is allowing to, to, to tempt you, to show you that you need a helper in the midst of those temptations? What are they? You need help. You need help to overcome those temptations because you're not strong enough, you're not powerful enough, you're not able enough in your own ability to overcome that temptation. You can't just kind of gut it out and pull yourself up by your bootstraps and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop giving into the sin. You need a helper, you need a, a priest, you need someone who's going to exercise on your uh, behalf to give you grace in that moment to help you in the midst of those times of temptations. And that's why Christ came. That's why he was incarnate. That's what the verse says, verse 18. He, he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered so that he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Do you realize what Christ experienced on this earth? From the beginning of his public ministry to the end, it was filled with temptation. Remember Matthew chapter 4? Satan comes and tempts him to turn stones into bread because he was hungry. And Satan comes and tempts him to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. And Satan comes and tempts him to give him the kingdoms of the world if he will just worship Satan. From the very moment of his public ministry, temptation, temptation, temptation. He was tempted when he was hungry. He was tempted when he was thirsty. He was tempted when he was tired. He was tempted when he was sorrowful. He was tempted in the garden. And in fact, he said to the point, God, if there's any other way possible, please let this cup pass from me. He was tempted when he was betrayed, falsely accused, mocked, beaten. He was tempted on the cross to call a legion of angels. Never once did he give in to the temptation. Never once did he sin. Never once did he yield to it. Look over in chapter 4, verse 15. Just turn over two chapters. Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let that sink in. Christ has experienced every possible temptation, and he has withstood those temptations and not succumbed to them once. You say, well, of course he didn't, because he couldn't sin. He was God. That's not even fair. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Think about this. Christ experienced more temptation in intensity than we will ever face. And the reason for that is because most of us, when we're faced with temptation, we don't fight and 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 fight. We give in at some point. But not Christ. He resisted and 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 he resisted forever and ever. He resisted. And because of that, the intensity of the temptations were greater than you and I will ever face. 
he felt temptation to a degree that we could not possibly ever experience. He felt its full force. He felt its full weight. He felt its full intensity in a way that you and I will never experience. And so don't think that Christ can't relate to your temptations because he couldn't sin. No, he endured temptations to the point that you will never endure. And so if there's anyone who knows what it's like to withstand temptation, it's Christ. He never succumbed. And so because of that, go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18. What does it say? He is able. He's able. He's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's marvelous. So whatever you're facing today, whatever temptation you're dealing with, whatever struggle to fall back into sinful ways you are dealing with, beloved, you need to understand that you have a priest and an advocate who is enabled by his incarnation to sympathize not with our sinning but with our suffering. And because of that, he is able to help you in the midst of your suffering and your temptation. So why is the incarnation important? It's important because he came to identify with us, to deliver us from the fear of death, to act as our sympathetic priest, and to help us in our temptation. And all of that was bound up in a little baby in a manger. That's the spirit of Christmas. That's the reason for the season. Pray with me. Father, these truths are remarkable, so mysterious is the incarnation that we cannot fully fathom it, but we praise you for the reality of it. We praise you that in the incarnation we have one who can identify with us. We praise you that we have one who has remove the sting of death. We praise you that we have an, a priest who accesses you on our behalf and intercedes for us. And we thank you that we have a Savior who knows what it's like to be tempted. Marvelous, marvelous realities that spill forth from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Lord, perhaps there's some here this morning who have found their way here, perhaps being invited by friend or family, or perhaps just coming because they knew they should go to church on Sunday at Christmas. And Lord, if that's the case and they don't know you, God, would you be the hound of heaven? And would you be after them? And would you let them not feel settled and comfortable until they have done right with you by accepting Christ as Lord and Savior? Restore them to a relationship with you through the work of Christ. And for us who do know you, Father, we pray that these truths will sink deep into our heart today, tomorrow, the rest of this week. Let these truths be something that we think about and meditate on as we hear people talking about the reason for the season or the spirit of Christmas. May our mind come back to these marvelous truths. God, we thank you that you became a man. You brought us to yourself. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.
You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.